It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. Inflation is dominating the financial news headlines, and millions of Americans are really hurting from the high prices for gas and food. The unemployment rate is still low, but some companies are announcing layoffs and hiring freezes, and it's hard to see the light at the end of the economic tunnel. We are definitely entering a period where globally we are growing more slowly than we did before. Maybe the analogy is at one point we were all driving in a car doing 90 miles an hour, and now we're doing 45, and it feels really slow. Right now, we have more questions than answers. What caused the highest inflation rate in 40 years, and how do we get out of it? Are we facing a recession? And who is inflation affecting the most? Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling conversations hosted by the Aspen Institute. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. A panel of economic experts at the 2022 Aspen Ideas Festival explored all of these questions, picking apart what happened in hindsight and looking ahead to predict where the economy might go from here. You'll hear from Karen Kimbrough, the Chief Economist at LinkedIn, Gregory Dacko, the Chief Economist at EY Parthenon, and Stephen Ratner, CEO of Willett Advisors. The event was held on Wednesday, June 29th and was moderated by Ellen McGirt, Senior Editor at Fortune Magazine. Here's McGirt. Tell us a little bit, before we dive into the conversation, how awesome is it to be the Chief Economist at LinkedIn? Like, what is your day like? Okay. So, um, thanks for that. <laughs> hey everybody, it's really nice to be here. Um, uh, when I first uh, took this role a couple years ago, just before the pandemic, my mom actually was like, "What? why does LinkedIn need a chief economist? Um, the answer is that um, at LinkedIn, we have over 830 million members globally, um, close to 60 million companies um, are part of our network. And so we have this really unique insight in a real-time way, very granular, about what's going on in the labor market, both from the supply side, meaning people who are offering to work, employees, and people who are looking for workers, employers. And so it gives us a really great insight, kind of ahead of actually the publicly available data about what's going on in the labor market. So for me, it's a lot of fun and an opportunity to really understand what's going on when you slice it by different cohorts of women and who's an entrepreneur or who's sitting in, this, in the you know, Rust Belt versus uh, mm -hmm. the southern states. And so that's, that's what I do. I spend my time looking at the data. And you, but you have, a, you have a formal economist background. You worked for the Fed for many years. I did. I was at the Fed for 10 years. I had the pleasure of working there under Tim Geithner, Bill Dudley, um, and all the folks that um, were basically trying to figure out what was going on in 2007 and 2008. And I was mm -hmm. uh, joking earlier, I was the person, at one point they came and asked me, should we buy treasuries or mortgages or both? And so me and a team of us were trying to figure out what that should be, and it ended up being both. Well, you have seen some things. I have. <laughs> Greg, um, tell us a little bit about your life and your work. And it strikes me as I was getting to know you, um, you are in a unique position to understand what very powerful people are afraid of right now. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about some of the questions that you're hearing. Yeah, no, certainly. Um, I think you know, one of the, the interesting facets of being chief economist at, at EY is that you have access to a lot of uh, leadership, a lot of executives uh, across a broad array of, of companies. Um, and so an important thing in, in this role is really to listen to what people have to say. Uh, because oftentimes, as economists, you're asked for your opinion, your views, your thoughts. Um, and you have your thoughts, you have your views, you have your opinions. Um, but it's often important and more important to listen to how people are feeling and what they are expecting in their leadership roles. Uh, and so at this, within this, this role, this new function that I, I, I recently uh, joined, I have the opportunity to do a lot of that. Uh, and so I think in doing that, 
You have a leading edge in terms of your understanding of the underlying dynamics in terms of business investment, in terms of hiring, in terms of inflation dynamics, which is, of course, a key topic today. Uh, so that's, that's been really a, a, f a fun part of the job uh, over the last few months. Econ economist as therapist? I don't know if it's therapy, because <laughs> uh, it can get boring after a while, but, uh, but it, is, it is really important to, to listen. I, I don't stress it enough because we tend to think of, of our environment as being the normal, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm not used to being in this type of, of conferences. Usually the conferences I go to, uh, everybody's wearing a suit uh, and a tie, and everybody speaks the same language. And uh. I think it's important to you know, listen to what people are feeling, but also express your views, your opinions, your thoughts in a way that, it, that is easy to understand for everybody, not just a few in a select environment. Well, that makes this nervous moderator very happy to hear that. Thank <laughs> you for that. So Steve, I turn to you. You are, have an extraordinary career. Um, you are the closest that America has to our own personal economist, and I thank you for that work. And if you think, like I do, that it's a good thing that the auto industry survived 2008, we can thank you for that work that you led as well. Thank you. That's nice. Um, and uh, you, are, you are everywhere. You, uh, when I, I see you on Morning Joe. I read you in, New York, in the New York Times. Uh, your greatest, latest hits are, we may be on track for a recession just as the 2024 campaign kicks off, when inflation meets a war, and inflation is everywhere, and consumers aren't happy. So I'm going to need a hug after this panel. <laughs> <laughs> That's clearly true. Prices are rising. The rent is too damn high. Gas prices are too damn high. We've fallen behind on the curve on inflation. I thought you would be the perfect person to kick off this conversation with some foundational insights. Where we are, how is this different from 1970, everyone's running around screaming stagflation. I thought we could all talk about that together too before we dig into what this might mean for us. So Steve, over to you. So um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you make me sound like a perennial bear and I'm not really a perennial bear. I'm actually an optimist by nature, but as I say to my kids, you have to deal with the world as it is, not as you wish it were. Yes. And the world is what it is today. Um, I'm going to be modest and take a little bit of credit for the title of this panel because Kitty Boone said to me, what should we talk about? And I said, this is what I'm hearing, inflation in the economy and how bad is it going to get? Well so, done. So we will, well, we're happy to talk about it. And when you mentioned briefly the 1970s, you didn't ask me about my career, but you were kind enough to go through a lot of it. But I did start my career, in effect, covering the Carter administration and covering the inflation of the 1970s for the New York Times. Uh -huh. And so I saw it up close and personal at the Fed and at the Treasury. And uh, in the words of the immortal Yogi Berra, there are moments where I feel deja vu all over again, that you know, we are going through yeah. some version of that. Um, and, and that's the situation we find ourselves in, that we uh, have a serious inflationary problem. The debate over whether this is transitory or permanent has been resolved. It, it, is, it is embedded in the economy at the moment, and it's going to have to work its way. It's going to have to work its way through. I think there are really three pieces of how we got to this place, if that is helpful for me to address. I think uh, some of which we saw, some we didn't see. Uh, the piece that I think we, a number of us did see was the demand side problem, that there was so much stimulus going into the economy, both through fiscal measures like the famous stimulus checks, other kinds of benefit programs designed to deal with the pandemic, which were all very well meant, very well intentioned, and many of them appropriate and necessary, but we, we just sort of overshot the mark a bit and went too far in terms of how much we did. And so there is something over $2 trillion at the moment sloshing around in the economy, more than what normally would be held by people all looking to go buy stuff, which creates inflation. 
The two pieces that I think most of us missed, uh, some because they were unforeseeable, some because uh, we missed them, I think the supply side of the problem wasn't really appreciated. I don't think we really understood. And by the way, I'm not really an economist. I just play one on television. So you can take it for, <laughs> take it for what you want. Um, uh, we didn't really see that all the demand that was being created was going to create all these bottlenecks of supply. And that, of course, would then mean prices go up. Um, so if you take, for example, the famous port of Los Angeles and all the congestion, right. which was real, but some of it may have had to do with COVID or labor problems or this or that, but the fact is that 20% more stuff was coming through the port of Los Angeles than would be normal, and that creates bottleneck, and that creates delays. The third piece, which was really unforeseeable on the supply side, was, of course, the war and, to some degree, the China lockdown, which I'm not sure is the most significant part of the problem, but certainly the war and the impact that's had on energy, but on all kinds of other raw materials. I'm talking about the Russian invasion of Ukraine, obviously, uh, has had a significant cost uh, pressure on inflation as well. So it does remind me of the 70s in that sense, in that there was uh, some, some self-inflicted wounds and some exogenous things that either couldn't be foreseen or weren't foreseen. Makes sense. We've got two, two actual economists here, too, who can also weigh in. You were both nodding at various times during, during the setup here. Greg, do you, why don't I throw to you first? How, did, how would you describe the moment that we're in? And, and I, we talked about shocks as we were preparing, yeah. too. So I think that's an interesting piece of it as well. I, I would often, well, I often describe the current environment as, as being unique uh, because you know, we try to make comparisons with historical prior historical moments that were similar. We think about the 1970s when there was stagflation, um, but that it lasted essentially a part of a decade, if not slightly more. Um, we talk about the, the different periods in time, you know, the, the financial crisis when we think about a recession or the COVID crisis when we think about a recession. But this current environment is unique and the uniqueness of, of the current moment is defined by its speed. Uh, this business cycle, I think, is unusually rapid. Um, mm. And part of it, was, was just highlighted in the fact that we had unprecedented amounts of fiscal stimulus that were passed. Uh, Congress passed over $5 trillion of fiscal stimulus measures to try to prop up the economy from uh, the COVID hit. Um, that's a very large sum. That's about 10% of GDP in a very short amount of time. And so we had this very rapid acceleration of demand. Supply struggled to keep up because supply also was hit by the COVID crisis. And then we ended up with this imbalance between supply and demand. Um, and the current environment, the current macro environment that we're facing is one of extreme uncertainty. There's a lot of macro volatility, a lot of uncertainty. And so it makes business decisions that much harder because businesses are uncertain when they're planning a year ahead or two years ahead as to what the final demand environment will be. And the other element with it, which I think is, is unique in the, the current uh, setting is the fact that we have central banks around the world that are for the first time in a long, long while all tightening at the same time. The focus for central banks right now is to tame the inflation beast. They'll worry about growth later, but they want to get inflation under control because they want to avoid a situation which was like the 1970s, where inflation was rampant and growth was either low or negative. That's the type of environment they want to avoid, and so they're going to be focusing on taming inflation right now. 
So Karen, you're nodding. You're I nodding am. down there. I want to ask you about the labor market, but jump in on this because that does sound like it's a risk reward that seems really sure. dicey to me. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, I mean, there's inherently trade-offs, right? The central banks, um, and you're, to your point, they're all tightening at the same time. That's a lot of tightening at the same time that we're seeing, you know, general growth just slowing by half. I mean, whatever the forecasts are, we are seeing expectations for globally the growth to slow by half of what it was last year. And same thing for the U.S. We're looking for a pretty slow economy this year. It's still going to perhaps be above trend, but it will be slower than it was last year. And next year is likely to be even slower. So whether it's, we'll get into whether it's a recession or, or not, you know, whatever you want to define it as, um, we are definitely entering a period where globally we are growing more slowly than we did before. Maybe the analogy is at one point we were all driving in a car doing 90 miles an hour, and now we're doing 45, and it feels really slow. It doesn't mean that we're at stall speed. But it does mean we, we've, we've slowed down a lot and it's going to expose a lot of vulnerabilities. And what I would, I would add to maybe what Greg and, and Steve have said is that from our perspective um, at LinkedIn, there's definitely um, the tightening from the central bank, but there's also, think about the balance sheets that are being wound down as well. So it's a kind of a technical thing, but the central banks are also kind of pulling back on a lot of the liquidity that they've been feeding the economy since the last crisis. Um, so it's going to feel really bad, and you're going to see that in how consumers feel. You're gonna, they, they don't feel good, and it's partly inflation, but it's probably just because everything is just re retracting at such a, a fast pace right now. Um, and that's, honestly, that was kind of inevitable when we had this much, you know, to Steve's point, this much fiscal stimulus, this much monetary stimulus. So I think we're all feeling really, really badly, but my position is that we're actually not at a point where we're at stall speed. Okay. We don't see that yet. All right, all right. I do want to ask about the labor market, but you mentioned vulnerabilities, and I think it's important to, keep, to continue on that thread. What are the characteristics of big companies of employers who are most likely to be vulnerable in this tightening environment? What, what is going on in their balance sheets? What's happened to them in, this, in their businesses? How, you know, where have they been exposed in geopolitics or just in global business? What, let's identify that group of, group of companies first. Sure, and I, I would invite Greg and, and Steve to join me, but I'll yep. take a crack at it first. So, um, so one of the things is like, of course, during the pandemic, what we saw were, um, you know, everybody, everybody kind of took a moment, um, and a lot of companies actually did pause their hiring. We saw these dramatic drops in hiring um, globally, especially in the U.S. Uh, but they didn't pause their spend budgets. They were still doing online marketing. They were still spending to preserve their brand. Um, and, their, and their, their sales contacts, but they weren't just doing as much hiring. Um, as things came back, they ramped up really aggressively all through 2021. That's where you have all the job postings that we, we talk about, um, all the availability of jobs. If you're looking for one, nobody was looking for one. Everyone was happy at home, so it seems. Uh, but what we're seeing now is that businesses, um, sector by sector, are reacting differently, and some are getting quite cautious. And what I would, I would just say here is, even if I just look at large companies versus small companies, we're seeing small companies um, start to kind of really get cautious. They're pulling back on the amount of job postings they're putting out there. So they're not like growing their vacancies the way they were before. Uh, large companies, I think, are holding on right now, maybe in a, a moment of assessment. But we've already seen um, the growth in job postings for small companies uh, really start to pull back. So I think I'll let you kind of speak to sectors, but I think we're already starting to see little hints of that caution in the business world. Yeah, I mean, from a, a sectoral perspective, it's, it's very interesting because some sectors are in full recession planning mode. 
Some sectors are in contingency mode, what if? And then some sectors are actually still hiring quite, quite at a rapid pace. Um, the sectors that are, that are slowing down and, and actually in some cases laying off people are the tech sector uh, or the retail sector where essentially there's this rotation in consumer spending and there's perhaps less need uh, for labor in some of these, these sectors. The sectors that are in the, the midstream are sectors that are still doing okay but they're a little bit worried about the, the outcome over the next, next year or so. Uh, manufacturing might be a, a good example. And then there are sectors that are still doing well and still hiring a lot, and those are sectors that are still short labor. There are sectors that are like leisure, retail, hosp uh, le leisure, hospitality, travel, um, that are all looking to hire because the summer is quite hot. You know, there's a lot of travel happening. There are a lot of people that want to go out and spend, uh, spend on services, spend on in-person services and in-person activities. And so there's a lot of demand on that front. I think one element that I would stress just broadly in terms of labor, and we'll see whether this is confirmed or not, but the value of talent I think has changed after COVID. We were in a period, and we are still in a period, where talent has much more value than it did previously because there is so, such a difficulty in acquiring the right talent, and the price of that talent has gone up in terms of wages, in terms of benefits, in terms of what people are asking for. And that mismatch that we saw and we're still seeing in some sectors between labor demand and labor supply means that companies, I think, will be a little bit more careful than in prior recessions in laying off people. They might pause hiring first, maybe hire a little bit less first than pause hiring, maybe lay off a few people, but the, 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 the cost of talent is not going to go down. So I think that that, that is something that, that is unique, again, to this business cycle. Uh, let me, I think all, I agree with everything that was said, so let me add a couple of pieces around the edges, uh, if I could. First, just to take a broad perspective on this, this is the most unusual business cycle I've seen in my career, hmm. in the sense that we, uh, we may or may not be past stall speed. I happen to think we're headed past it. We can get to that, that issue. But certainly, the economy has slowed dramatically. You had negative GDP in quarter one for some fairly technical reasons. You may have flat GDP in quarter two. We may even technically be in a recession as we sit here. But we have a 3.5% unemployment rate. We have 11 million unfilled jobs, and roughly half of that number of people actually looking for jobs. And so we are short of labor, oddly enough, even at a time as the economy is slowing down. Some of you may have had, I hope not too many of you, uh, problems with the airlines getting here, mm -hmm. and the airlines simply cannot hire enough people. You can't take a pilot off the street, you can't take someone off the street and say, now you're a pilot. There's a pipeline, they have to be trained, and so on. You may have seen, for example, that the commuter airlines raised their pay by 50%, 5-0% to try to keep their pilots. I'm giving you a little anecdotes. I was driving in from the airport when we got here and I saw a sign on a Wendy's saying they're now paying $19 an hour for people to serve hamburgers in the middle of rural Colorado, which seems like, uh, you know, on one level at least, a lot of money. So th there, is, there is this real problem right now of some companies and businesses laying off people, as you just heard, and we see some of the same things, but also terrible time finding labor, even as we may be going into a recession. So it's a very, very odd time in the labor market, and uh, there are still many people, the so-called great resignation, there's so many people who've chosen not to re-enter the labor market for one reason or another, and all these imbalances exist around the economy. But those are more at the micro level, and then you have the overall macro level, of course. 
And one of the things that we talked about as we were preparing and as I was reading through um, some, of the, some of the things that you've published recently is talking about the demand piece of it. The things that it's hard to talk about is we're just gonna need to start spending less, that we have to really dig into what that looks like. And that just seems, that, that just seems to be such a fraught path. Could you explain what the risks are around that? Yeah, so that is the absolute core of the issue. You have gotten to, the, at least in my opinion, the absolute core of the issue. The only way, inflation isn't going to just cure itself like a cold, where you just sort of stay in bed for a couple of days and everything's going to be fine. Uh, we, had a, we had some serious policy mistakes. We're unwinding them at the moment. We're going to pay a price for those serious policy mistakes in terms of what we will have to do to get the genie back in the bottle, so to speak. And so one of the biggest of them is we have too much, you know, it's just economics one. We have too much demand relative to the supply, and that creates inflation. We can try to solve the supply side by uncorking these bottlenecks and things that we do, and over time they will uncork themselves. But demand has to be reduced. Well, there's simply too much demand out there. And the only way to, that we know of to do, reduce demand, I mean, well, you could reduce it through fiscal policy, which would mean big tax increases. There's no political appetite for that. That's not going to happen. Right. Or it's the Fed, and that's what the Fed is doing. And so they're raising interest rates, which operate in a number of ways. Uh, they operate directly on the housing market. They make housing more expensive. People buy fewer houses, lowers demand. It operates through the capital markets. The stock market comes down. People feel less wealthy. Even you know, people of middle incomes, they have a 401k. It's suddenly mm -hmm. worth 20% less. They decide they don't need a new couch this month. Right. Less demand and so on. And, so you ha and, and that less demand in turn creates this job situation where there's more unemployment. You're not going to solve, you know, just be very blunt and direct, you're not going to solve this unemployment problem with, I'm sorry, this inflation problem, excuse me, you're not going to solve this inflation problem with unemployment at 3.5%. It's not possible. Okay. Unemployment is going to have to go up enough to reduce these labor demands and get, and get it uh, back. And the second thing, and the way that is going to have to happen is going to be substantially higher interest rates. There is no example in history that I'm aware of yeah. where an inflation problem has been solved without interest rates being higher than the inflation rate. And right now, interest rates, the Fed rate, at less than 2% is still a long way from whether you think inflation is 5 6 or 8%, depending on how you measure it, it's a long way from there. Yeah. So it's going to take substantially higher interest rates over a period of time. I, I hate to be such a, such a uh, pessimist. Uh, uh, substantially higher interest rates over a substantial period of time, reduce demand, reduce inflation. Karen, you were nodding along in such an apologetic way, and I, I appreciate the empathy that you bring to your work. <laughs> Can you tell us what's on, what's on your mind? I was. I agree with, I agree with Steve. I mean, we're at a stage where um, in order for the Fed to kind of tackle inflation, you're going to have to see unemployment go up. And the question is how high. The good news is that it's coming from a pretty low starting point. So as we see unemployment rise, um, maybe it's 35 3.6%. Maybe it goes to 5%. Um, um, I'm not on a projection. That's just a, you know, the suggestion. Um, but I do think that what we should talk a little bit about is how that breaks out. Because to your point, Greg, around the value of talent, there are certain segments of folks who are not going to really feel the recession that much. And then there are segments who are going to really feel it because mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe you know they're just their their skill is not as valued, um, or they don't have the bargaining power to to kind of ensure that they have a job and can keep their wage, real wage, meaning the wage when you take into account inflation is still rising. Um, so I think that there's going to be some distributional effects that are going to be kind of pretty painful. And yeah. there are other other panels that we've been in this morning, listening to um, where folks are already talking about people 
who work those like shift jobs, right. who are already making trade-offs to balance their budget. Um, right. So for some people, to Steve's point, the recession probably already feels like it's here, right. um, even if technically I, I personally don't see it in my data. No, and that terrifies me. And it's, it was the, it's on the long list of terrifying questions for the panel to prepare. It's like their job is clearly to calm me down. But <laughs> it's a big part of my coverage. I, I, I talk about and I do cover entire communities of people who have these shift jobs, who had been ignored people, then became essential workers during, during COVID. And their jobs were already on track to be replaced by automation in you know, 10, 15 years as it is. And we're not investing in them. Could we talk a little bit about those kinds of populations and maybe what we should be thinking about, not just as people with jobs and money, Money, but as voters and, and people who are civically engaged, how do we think about their role in society? What do we need to be pressing for to the degree to which we can get our politicians on the phone anymore? And, and thinking about where, where their health relates to the entire economy. Well, they're the biggest, I mean, they're the biggest segment of the economy. There are more of them than there are of people here you know, who could fly into Aspen, right? Um, so um, it's incredibly important that that we kind of acknowledge the pain that they're going to be going through and that the inflation they're feeling is real because it is energy, it is food. Like if you look at the chart of what's contributing to inflation, it's off the charts particularly for energy. Um, and it's, it's pretty substantial if you're buying food for, as I do, for teenagers. Um, so it's one of those things where I think the way to tackle this problem is not going to be solved by the Fed or by any kind of immediate fiscal policy, but it's really a question about whether or not we're going to be able to reskill people so that their skills are valued. And, you know, from where I sit, we really think that it's important to think about how do you kind of skill people so they can stay competitive and stay valued in an economy that is increasingly technological. And I don't want to get us off the topic of inflation, but I will just tell you when we look at how jobs are changing over time, in a five or six year span, we can see the same job at LinkedIn become much more technical, requiring much more expertise in terms of a software or a technology experience or a facility with data. And I'm not just talking about tech jobs, I'm talking about all jobs, if you're an architect, if you're in construction. So yeah. it's, it's kind of critical we bring people along and so they have the access to broadband, they have the ability to skill themselves and they have the ability to compete and participate in the labor market. No, that makes perfect sense. I'm going to, about to turn my attention to the audience. Anybody has a question already? Oh, yes. Hi. And then next over here. Wait for the, wait for the mic. It's coming. Just make sure everyone can hear you. Thank you. Um, thank you for the panel. Um, so to say that I'm not um, an economist would want to be one of the great understatements. So <laughs> this might be a little bit of a na naive question. Um, but two questions, or a two-part question. Um, you know, the president is, is blamed a lot for infl inflation. So I want to know a little bit how much, how much the, the, the president and his office is responsible and how much they can affect it. And then, you know, Steve and I have known each other from politics for many, many, many years. So I'm also wondering how much you think it will um, affect the election, the upcoming election. That's a Steve question. The Steve question. Um, <laughs> this is off the record right now. I can't be off the record with this many Too people in the room. Um, look, I, I, I am and was a supporter of the president um, on every level, and um, you can all imagine why. But it would be dishonest of me to say that a substantial amount of the responsibility for this doesn't lie at the White House. That's a double negative, but you get the point. Um, the the there, there was a very substantial misjudgment of the amount of stimulus the economy needed in order to deal with COVID at the point it was at in 2020. Um, a little of it, uh, and I don't want to get too deep in the weeds, Biden got a little bit boxed into the weeds by, the, by 
President Trump, ironically. If you remember in December of 2020, he was running around Georgia during those Senate elections calling for $2,000 stimulus checks, an additional $2,000 stimulus checks. And so it put Biden in a bit of a political box of, well, am I going to be to the right of Trump on stimulus checks? And so we ended up with a round of stimulus checks that we didn't need, along with a bunch of other stuff. I think it would also be fair as a criticism of the president to say he actually proposed something like $6.5 trillion of various kinds of, of programs and projects, of which only the $1.9 trillion plus the infrastructure program that you heard about yesterday actually got passed. And, uh, and imagine if all that got, had gotten passed and all that money, uh, and there were some tax increases offset, part of it were sloshing around in the economy. The, but probably if you were assigning responsibility, you'd put more than 50% of it on the Fed. The Fed has more control over inflation than the, the executive branch through fiscal policy. And then the question becomes, well, why did Jay Powell get so far over his skis? Why did he think inflation was transitory? Why did they buy all those mortgages and treasuries that you heard discussed a second ago? And you, there are several theories. First of all, the Fed has something like 950 economists in it. I believe I read that number It's the somewhere. biggest employer of economists uh, yes. in the U.S. And, and they missed it. <laughs> they totally missed it. And so did they miss it because there was some kind of group that thing. That shouldn't be surprising. Hmm? That shouldn't be surprising that economists missed it. Somehow their model didn't catch it. <laughs> well, economists, you know, uh, economic, it's another panel, but economics isn't really a science. We all know that. Uh, it's, it's a rough approximation of what might happen. Look, I think the gist of what happened at the Fed is that the Fed, and I'll oversimplify this a little bit, the Fed basically said to itself, and its models basically said, we haven't had inflation in 40 years. We've had fairly stimulative policies before. We had unemployment down in the 3.5% range before COVID hit. And therefore, therefore, we think maybe something has fundamentally changed here. This is called the Phillips curve for anyone here who is an economist. Uh, we think maybe something here has fundamentally changed, and we can put more stimulus in the economy. We can run the economy more hot, to use the expression, without creating inflation. And that all turned out to be wrong. I think I, I will give the Fed the benefit of the doubt and say that that was an honest mistake, as opposed to the fact that Jay Powell is up for reappointment. The president was saying this, and so on and so forth. But that's how I kind of assess it. We had a question here. It's funny, you know, the Fed, it's a, it's a always bet. I have an in-law who works at the Fed, and just watching the family pile on her every Christmas is like, you can't even believe it. People just do not trust, they hate, but the idea that all those economists were wrong is just going to make this holiday season a delight for so many of us. <laughs> this, is just a, this, is a, this is just a continuation of the topic you were just talking about. Uh, my name is Ben Benson. I'm a marketing professor at the University of Texas at Austin. And in fall of 2020, when the second stimulus was announced, I said to several of my MBA courses, this is going to trigger raging inflation. And I literally got shouted down by my students with that phrase, this time it's different. And to me, it seemed so obvious at that time that putting this much money into the economy couldn't but be inflationary. What is your level of confidence in policymakers, in the administration, and in the Fed, and in Congress to take the lessons in the last two years and apply them correctly so we don't overcorrect and we actually do get a better balance in our economy? Greg, you want to Yeah, I have a, a bit of a, a different perspective, slightly different perspective in terms of the underlying drivers of, of inflation. I think we, we have to be careful not to verse into it's either all demand or either all supply. Both forces are at play. If you look at the situation of headline inflation, so you include energy, you include, include food prices today, 
a big chunk of that is on the supply side. A big chunk of that is coming from higher oil prices, higher gas prices, higher fertilizer prices, higher food prices in general. So I think we have to be a little bit careful not to put everything on the side of demand and that it was all because of policy. The other thing that we have to keep in mind is that we're looking at this with a bit of a, a backward view of what happened, right? I mean, you, you were saying that at the time you, you, you felt like it was too much. But let's not forget that we were going through something that we had never gone through. Mm -hmm. The speed at which Congress reacted back in early 2020 and the speed at which the Fed reacted prevented a much deeper crisis and a much deeper and potential financial crisis than what we went through. So I think we have to keep that in mind. And that rapid action, in my opinion, was the right action at the time. Now, if we have the, the, the back view today that we have put too much stimulus in the economy, and I think that was the case, we should have been more discriminate in terms of the type of stimulus that was passed, we should also acknowledge that the Fed wasn't used to this type of environment. So I'll, I'll defend the Fed for a second, but <laughs> I think we have to be conscious that, you know, the Fed wasn't used to seeing these types of more permanent supply shocks, back-to-back -back supply shocks, and this type of very strong fiscal stimulus that was pumping up demand. Right. And so it was facing a very unusual environment, and it had just adopted, just before the COVID crisis, a new framework, which was aimed at stimulating the economy. Because remember, two years ago, the struggle was to get inflation up towards target. Right, 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 right. That is, I think, a big part of why we are where we are today, and why the Fed is having now to really press the brakes in terms of tightening fiscal, uh, tightening monetary policy in quite an aggressive way. And I think, in my opinion, we'll, we'll probably end up in a slowdown that's... Uh, we're going to get a microphone over to you in just Could a I? second. Steve, you want to... I, and I just, uh, just really quickly, because I don't want to monopolize this. Um, number one, on supply being a problem, I agree with you, except I would simply say that some of the supply problems were created by demand that we had so much demand going on that it was, oil prices were going up long before Ukraine was invaded by Russia. All kinds of commodity prices were going up because there was demand. Number two, I agree with you completely that we had to respond aggressively to COVID. It was unprecedented. It was really hard to figure out you know, what was exactly uh, you know, the right way to go about it. And so we overshot the mark a bit. And, and I just do think, though, that we could have done a better job. Could I just add on to that? Um... I think also the Fed was somewhat fighting the last war. Um, they saw they made mistakes in 2008. They got accused of protecting a whole bunch of banks and let Main Street fall apart. And they were like, we need to do more, and we need to do better this time around. So they were sort of all in. Um, that was one issue. And the second issue is that they had spent the prior, I don't know, decade, two decades, figuring out why inflation was so low. I could like give you stacks of papers that try to explain why inflation was too low. And suddenly, they just didn't think it was going to happen that quickly. So they made a mistake they are responsible for, but I don't know if they caused it. I see the causes are a lot of what Greg mentioned. That's fair enough. Right over here. Thank you. And Hi. I have a two-part question. The first concerns interest rates. It seems to me with the unprecedented amount of debt to GDP and overall that it will be very hard for the government to service interest rates unless they're kept low, like happened in Japan. Mm -hmm. And I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on that. And second... Given that we're probably at the end uh, of the run of globalization and using low-cost labor to keep goods low, that fact together with uh, what the gentleman, the professor said about the massive stimulus causing inflation, what's your prediction uh, on inflation over the mid to long term? Who would like to tackle that? 
Um, well, I, I can start. Um, look, the federal government has been the beneficiary of low interest rates in terms of the cost of its debt, as you just said, and it has managed to, uh, it has helped to keep the budget deficit becoming, from becoming completely ridiculously large, and just only modestly ridiculously large. Um, but we cannot run monetary policy around the federal government's interest costs. Japan has a whole other set of problems which relate more to what my two fellow panelists were just talking about, which was the problem of getting inflation up, not the problem of getting inflation down. We have a problem of getting inflation down. And so we cannot run a monetary policy to artificially depress interest rates for any number of reasons, including the reason that you said. And we're going to simply have to pay that price in terms of the federal budget deficit rising as interest rates rise from cost of servicing $22 trillion of debt. Um, in terms of the outlook for interest rates, as I said, I, I know of no example in history where we have solved an inflation problem without interest rates getting higher than the inflation rate and staying there for a good while. And that would be my prediction. And I'll add the last thing on because I want to make sure we don't end the panel without it, even though it's not a happy thing. We haven't used yet the R word in this conversation. The closest we got was stall speed. Right. But I think we have to get to the R word. Yep. And I would also say there is really no precedent for solving an inflation problem of this magnitude without a recession. And we simply have to accept that that is probably in our future as a reality. Not tomorrow, I don't think, but, but somewhere in the course of solving this problem. Yeah, I would tend to agree with that perspective of somewhat of a, a recession. It need not be deep. I think we have to depart a little bit from this idea that a recession is going to be like the last two ones. Um, they need not be as deep. We can have a, a mild recession. But let's not forget that because of the setup we're in today, because the Fed is intent on taming inflation, because there are much wider deficits, much wider debt loads than there was prior to COVID, there might be less of a response from the policy side. That's also something that we have to keep in mind in terms of the outlook for, for the economy. Right here. Thank you. Our global supply chain has been really impacted going back to last administration with a massive amount of tariffs import uh, uh, from China. Uh, obviously, it was further challenged by the war in Ukraine, mm -hmm. but going back to the tariff uh, imposed on Chinese imports, a lot of that were non-strategic. Some aspects of it, say on chips and others, uh, are targeted, but I don't really understand why are we not removing all of the non-strategic tariffs on Chinese imported goods to help with inflation? I mean, from, from an inflation perspective, uh, removing the tariffs, uh, let's say you remove the tariffs on half of our imports from, from China, would not dramatically change the inflation picture. I mean, when we were in the trade war in 2018, and we had the tariffs being added to about four-fifths of our, our imports from China, significant tariffs, the impact on inflation was relatively moderate. I mean, we were talking about five-tenths, six-tenths maybe on inflation. Now, that's huge when you're talking about 2% baseline inflation or under 2% baseline inflation. But when you're talking about 8.5% inflation, yes, it would help, but it's not going to dramatically change the picture. I think that, honestly, the sad truth is that there's not a silver bullet that the administration can use to resolve the inflationary situation right now. There can be a number of measures that can be put in place. Reducing tariffs would, I think, be much desired and something that would be beneficial to all, but it wouldn't solve, resolve the, the inflation issue overall. It would help, but it wouldn't resolve the overall inflation picture. Behind you, I think. 
Um, Steve, you mentioned the deficit. Um, it seems to me that the over uh, where the debt bubble is now is at the federal level, and I'm wondering how you do something about that. And could you? Why hasn't anyone proposed like a gas tax or something like that to really uh, take that down and also uh, slow the economy and the inflation? Well, that's the perfect question for you. <laughs> um, I don't know as much about autos as you think I do, but um, uh, I know you know about, you, about you, gas, gas taxes. taxes. Yes, yeah. Well, look, the iron. Yes, I mean absolutely. The irony, one of the many ironies, and this gets a little bit to the previous question as well, uh, of the current situation is that we are not really trying to do things that would be helpful in the long run to either our supply problems of energy or our inflation, which relates to our inflation rate, of course. So, so what is the proposal from uh, the administration at the moment? It's to suspend the federal gas tax, not to raise it, but to lower it. Uh, it would have a benefit of $3.95 per consumer. That's what they're actually offering. So you could say, well, that's nothing. So why do we care? Gas tax hasn't been raised since 1993. The Federal Highway Trust Fund is basically broke and we have all this debt, but there is not a word, uh, except for Joe Manchin, oddly enough, there's not a word coming out of Washington about addressing our long-term fiscal structural problems, and that would have some effect on inflation over time if the federal government had a smaller deficit and was less a force in uh, creating demand, in a sense. I want to say, I forgot to answer the last part two questions ago, which relates also to the China tariffs. Look. Um, we are, pay, we are going to pay a price for deglobalization. Uh, it, it's simply obvious that the reason we had all this globalization was because companies were finding cheaper, better ways to source all the things that we wear and do and use. As we decide that for strategic reasons or geopolitical reasons or whatever set of reasons, we don't want to have those supply lines so stretched around the world, it is, it is actually a, an inflationary uh, piece of the puzzle that we're also going to have to deal with. It's a little bit in the same category. These are, we're measuring this in tenths. We're not talking about hundreds of percentage points, but it is going to have an effect on our inflation and our overall well-being to shorten those supply lines. We only have a couple of minutes left, so I thought we'd just do a quick roundup here. How bad is this thing going to get? And the, looking into the future, sort of an if-then kind of thing. I tend to be worried about two things. I'm worried about the coming food shortage um, that's, that's a direct result of the invasion of Ukraine that's coming across vulnerable communities in Europe and Africa. I'm also oddly very worried about the uh, microchips, access to microchips and the microchip shortage and all of that kind of geopolitical drama in China. That's what's on my mind. What's on your mind? And if this comes to pass, what should we, what should we be thinking about? Karen, I'm gonna start with you. Sure, so I think um, it will, we're gonna, we're gonna grow more slowly. Um, I already said that, and I think it'll continue into next year. Uh, I think that uh, we will see um, a rise in unemployment rates. Uh, I also think that because the Fed is withdrawing so much stimulus, both in terms of raising rates and tightening financial conditions, which is just a way of saying we all kind of feel worse and poorer, but also reducing its own balance sheet. So it's, it's just pumping less money into the economy. All of that, I think, is going to probably trigger that um, those exposed folks who are kind of low over their skis in terms of leverage or folks who need the liquidity but don't have access to it because they don't really have the great credit quality. So I think we're going to see more blips like what we saw in that sort of crypto mm -hmm. space. And I think they could also happen in emerging markets, which are really, really vulnerable to higher rate environments, lower liquidity and higher food prices. Greg, what do you see out in the horizon? 
I think we're going to be in this much more volatile and uncertain macro environment, um, and that has implications for businesses worldwide. Uh, we are going to be in an environment where I think business cycles are going to be shorter. Uh, I would expect to see a recession um, in the next few months. Uh, I would expect it to be relatively mild because household finances are still, in general, relatively healthy. Corporate finances are in general, relatively healthy. There are certainly pockets of excesses, but um, I don't think we'll end up in a, a deep recession. But I think that the fact that we're adjusting with such speed uh, to the different uh, rearrangements in, in the, the economic landscape means that we will have these shorter, shorter business cycles. Give you the last word. Uh, yeah, look, I, I, I also think there'll be a recession. I would probably put it a little further out uh, than Greg, simply because there's so much cash still in household balance sheets and sloshing around the economy. So maybe it's second half of next year, who knows? Um, I, think, I think the really important question is how fast people adjust to the new world and inflation comes down. There are some hopeful signs, we don't have time to get into them now, that this could be short, relatively short. It could also be relatively longer, but there's gonna be a cycle. And then my biggest concern, apart from the food shortage uh, issue, which is a terrible, terrible issue, is on the other side that we could face a prolonged period of pretty slow growth unless we do more on the productivity side, more to get our economy re-engineered for the future, mm. create the jobs that we were talking about for mm -hmm. the future, and do a lot of stuff that isn't happening in Washington right now. I appreciate each and every one of you. Thank you for your insights and for your calming views and your very smart questions. Karen Kimbrough is the Chief Economist for the LinkedIn Corporation. She's also worked at Google, Bank of America Merrill Lynch, and the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. In 2017, she was recognized by Black Enterprise as one of the most powerful black women in business. Gregory Dacko is Chief Economist at EY Parthenon, leading research on the global economy, central bank policy, and fiscal policy. Previously, he was Chief U.S. Economist at Oxford Economics. He is also a frequent guest on CNBC, Bloomberg, and NPR. Stephen Ratner is chairman and CEO of Willett Advisors and is a contributing writer for the New York Times op-ed page and an economic analyst on MSNBC's Morning Joe. Previously, he was a counselor to the U.S. Treasury Secretary and led the 2009 restructuring of the auto industry. Ellen McGirt is a senior editor at Fortune, where she established the race and leadership beat. Previously, she worked at Fast Company and Money, among others, and she recently launched Sweet Equity Media, an independent virtual newsroom fostering a deeper understanding of the roots of inequity. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas to go wherever you're listening. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on social media at Aspen Ideas. Today's show was programmed by the Aspen Ideas Festival team and produced by Natalie Jones and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for listening. Thank you.